Many Americans have become intellectually soft, floating about in their own echo chambers of self-selected news and social media channels. Critical thinking seems to be vanishing, and civility and civil dialogue have all but disappeared. Could the solution be found at a college that doesn't even allow current politics in the classroom? The answer may surprise you. Mark Roosevelt, president of St. John's College, joins the conversation on this week's episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? I am incredibly excited today to be joined by Mark Roosevelt, who is the president of St. John's College, which has two campuses, one in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and one in Annapolis, Maryland. It's the third oldest institution of higher learning in the United States. Uh, Prior to his tenure at St. John's College, uh, Mark served as president of Antioch College and was the superintendent of the Pittsburgh Public Schools. Uh, Mark was elected to the Massachusetts State's legislature in 1986 and later was the Democratic nominee for governor of Massachusetts. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us today on Therefore What? Great. Happy to be here. Well, you've uh, you've committed a lot of your career uh, to the education space uh, and, and doing it in a little different way. Uh, why why education and uh, what have you learned over over the years as it relates to education? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, well, education, I, when I was in politics, um, I was lucky enough to be named chair of the Massachusetts Legislature's Education Committee. And that kind of shaped my belief that education is the most important issue we have, even though as a voter's issue, sometimes it doesn't seem to be that important, unfortunately. Uh, and then I lost running for governor, as you pointed out. I actually lost quite badly, and I woke up. I was 38, and I realized I didn't want to do it again. And I realized I wanted to spend my life, what I had left of my career, in education. And I first trained to be a large city school superintendent, which is a very challenging job. Was lucky enough to be hired in Pittsburgh. Uh, learned a lot there, which we can or don't need to go into, depending on your preferences, Boyd. And then I was hired to recreate Antioch College, which had closed. And I did that for about six years and then came to St. John's, which is a very different place for me because I've heretofore been kind of a turnaround artist, but uh, St. John's does not need a turnaround. Um, so it's a, it's a different place for me. It's a very happy place for me. Um, I'm hoping it will be my last job. It's a really beautiful place, which is an odd word to apply to an educational institution, but it is. And um, so what I've learned that I bring to bear here is some of what you alluded to in your introduction, which is that in many ways, higher education in America has lost its way. And St. John's on most issues has been willing to sail against prevailing winds for a very long time. And we're very proud of that. And I think most of what we do that most other places don't do anymore is very good. Some of what we did and participated in, like the ridiculous escalation in college tuition prices, we we now um, want to change. Well, let's drill down into that. For those who aren't familiar with St. John's College, uh, 
How is it different from the the typical college or university today? Because this uh, there's a whole host of us. <laughs> I've, I've been talking about the, how excited I was for this podcast for several weeks now, and I think I have an army of about 65 people who are ready to quit their jobs and enroll uh, at St. John's College. But for those who aren't familiar uh, with your premise there, your history, give us give us a little backstory. Well, it's, a, it's almost easier to answer. Um, in simple ways, how we're alike because we're so different. So I'll try to highlight the most important differences. Um, we're very small. Uh, our faculty are called tutors and not professors because they do not profess. Our classes are all seminars built around the Socratic method. Our curriculum is entirely required. So every student is doing the same thing in different seminars, but the same textural works. We are known as the great books school, meaning that we really do study um, firsthand. We don't read secondary sources. We read the actual books. Students will read 222 books during the course of their four years here. The only thing that great books does not really describe well is they also do significant work in math and science. So they will learn calculus. They will do differential equations. Um, So... The premise of the school is that human beings do better if they understand how their culture and their civilization arrived at where they are. So we basically study what made Western civilization primarily, uh, what it is today, how we got there. Um, So it it moves chronologically from um, the Odyssey, which is uh, Homer is the first reading, um, all the way up through Heidegger and Einstein uh, in the senior year. Uh, So it's tough, Boyd. It's probably the most rigorous college in the country. Um, The classes are very small, so there's no place to hide. We have no adjunct faculty. We have no lectures. Uh, Our faculty do not lecture. Uh, A question is different here, which is kind of interesting to think about. A question is sort of a journey, uh, an invitation to go on a journey. Um, It's not that the faculty member knows the answer and wants to find out if the students know the answer. So uh, it's it's hard to overstate how different we are. Our faculty teach across the curriculum. Most have PhDs in philosophy. I think the second one would be political science. Um, but they also teach math, and they also teach the science classes. Um, so we're a community of learners. Both campuses are small, about 400 students. Classes are all small, all discussion-based, and we're all searchers. The faculty are searchers. The students are searchers. Um, we're just searching to understand as best we can who we are and how we got here. Wow. I, I, I love that. The difference between being a, a searcher, a tutor, or a professor, uh, we could probably spend four hours just in that <laughs> in that space and alone. And it would be fun. And it would be fun. It would be very good. So so for some of our listeners who maybe aren't super familiar with the Socratic method or, or have forgotten what that learning looks like, give us just a, a little... Uh, a little framing there in terms of what that looks like, because I want to use that as we dive into some other topics, uh, including civility and politics and a few of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's basically a, a questioning form of, of dialogue. So um, every, every seminar begins with a tutor asking an opening question that is supposed to frame um, that evening or that day's seminar. So if you're doing Tolstoy's War and Peace, it might be like, um, 
why is it called War and Peace? What, what does that title mean and what does it tell us about what Tolstoy is, is pursuing here? Um, it, it's, it's using questions to provoke searching and to provoke a focused kind of searching. And the class, if it works well, Boyd, to make another metaphor, it, it's almost like improvisational jazz. Um, each student sort of riffs off of what the previous speaker may have said. Love that. That's, uh, that, that's so different than what we're, we seem to be doing on a lot of college campuses today, which is to, to get the thinking to fit into a certain box or frame. Um, and so I, I want to drill down on that a little bit because often we do uh, hear this call that you know we, we need more critical thinkers uh, in the world or we need to think critically uh, about things as if that's something we either are born with or pull off the shelf. Uh, how do you approach it there at uh, at St. John's in terms of really honing and developing that critical thinking skill set? Well, I think it happens in <clears throat> in in everything they they do. Just the the questioning and the and the um, ability to to overcome your fears. I mean, for example, a lot of students come here and they're they're maybe a little bit math phobic. A lot of us are, right? I was. <laughs> I still um, am, by the and, way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I still am as well. Um, but, the, but the classes cause you... I, mean, I was in a math class the other day, and they were saying, <clears throat> if A1 and A2 contain all numbers, okay, all numbers are contained with either the set of A1 and the set of A2, um, if you make A3 or you make it 3 trillion, are A1 and A2 equal? Now, my mind doesn't wrap itself easily around that kind of question. Um, but boy, once you listen to the students go at that, um, you're seeing critical thinking happening um, and examination. The next question they asked was, um, did geometry ruin arithmetic? Now, I don't even, I mean, I'm being honest with you, Boyd, I don't even understand the question, right? I mean, I don't even understand what they're getting at. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, um, I mean, I've, you know, it's tough stuff. It's provocative stuff, but provocative not in the in the in the way perhaps of what's happened to our political discourse, but provocative in that it causes your mind to go places it just doesn't ordinarily go. Yeah, and I think that's such an important part of learning and unlearning and relearning and and advancing uh, is to be able to get comfortable in that uncomfortable space of of not knowing or not having a you know a platform or a position to just lock yourself into. Uh, yep. That that requires a little bit of courageous vulnerability, uh, which is interesting. So let's let's drill down on that a little bit, uh, Mark, as it relates to the current political climate. You don't uh, you don't do politics in your classroom, uh, and yet I am a passionate believer that you have tapped in uh, over and over and over again to what I think is really at the core and essence of how we solve the political problems and the political dialogue in the country. Well, that's a it's it's an interesting one because. We are a fairly non-political environment, and yet one of the things we hope our students get is the ability to um, talk across difference. Now, not by entertaining political subjects, but just by the, the, the books and the issues the books raise are hefty and um, sometimes controversial. If you're dealing with Don Giovanni, you're dealing with sexual misconduct. Um, so... It's not that some of the issues aren't political in the small p sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, what we hope happens, and, and I'm pretty confident does happen in the seminar room, is that p 
people learn to be respectful of other people's point of views. They learn to listen. So there's a difference between civility and civil dialogue. Civility just means being polite, and I think that's important. Sure. But civil dialogue is something beyond that. It's the ability to maintain courtesy and respect across difference. And that is certainly what we seem to have lost in our larger body politic. And, and we do believe that our seminars provoke those skills. But I will say this, because I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish. Um, outside of the classroom, we're not immune from the polemitization that has taken over this country and the, the, you know, the very you know, malignant dialogue that happens. I mean, I, I, for example, I appeared on Fox News. I appeared on the Tucker Carlson show, and a good many of my younger alumni wrote pretty aggressively expressing their disagreement with my decision to be on Tucker Carlson, and they didn't always exhibit the behaviors that we <laughs> want to see. So we're not, we, we don't, I hope we're not pretending anything here. I no. think we help people develop those skills, but wow, the, the currents in American life are so deep and so, yeah. and I, so I think troublesome that we're not immune. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think the, uh, this surely is, is not an exercise in, in kumbaya moments or, or group hugs or, or uh, just pretending, you know, we're, we're all Pollyanna. Uh, but I love, I love this idea of courtesy across different Tell me, tell me a little more about that, or tell me how you see that manifest on your campus or in your seminars and these discussions uh, be between your students. Well, you see it primarily in the classroom, in the seminar, that if somebody says something that is challenging and that you don't agree with, um, you're supposed to learn the skills of, of how to confront that disagreement respectfully and to phrase your question or your comment on the other person's perspective um, exhibiting that respect. And it does happen, and it happens a lot. Um, I think the, the question for us and, is, you know, how do you take that classroom civility and, and bring it out into the, to the world writ large, um, which is not easy. Right. Um, but at least our, our students, I think, develop the skills to do it if they can maintain that attitude that governs the classroom and bring it into other aspects of their lives. Mm. And, and I think you've done that even even on campus. I know you've you've had uh, a wide uh, range of political thought <laughs> uh, people from uh, Justice uh, Sotomayor from the Supreme Court. Uh, I know she was on campus. Uh, yes. I know you've had uh, conservatives like uh, Michael Casey and, and others. Yes. Uh, tell us about that process and experience, and, and what learning did that create for the students uh, to have people with very strong political opinions or, or political presence uh, on campus? Well, we don't often have speakers like that. They were both unusual, but we are proud of how it went. Um, look, I mean, like most younger people on college campuses, our, our students lean left. They don't lean as much left as students do on other campuses, and our faculty are more diverse in their politics than other faculties are. But Sonia Santamayor was um, certainly greeted um, with great affection. Judge Mukasey was greeted with respect. He gave an extremely polemical um, speech um, to which he was not protested at all. Um, and he received some certainly edgy questions. Um, but afterwards, when I spoke to him, he fully acknowledged and fully understood that there were almost 
there were very few other college campuses in this country he could have given this talk on and not had disruption. Um, <clears throat> so our students did exhibit great respect, and, and I guess they were grateful for the opportunity to hear him. How many of them agreed with what he was saying about um, various political issues, I don't know. But um, he certainly, nobody turned their back, nobody held up signs, nobody booed, nobody shouted, um, and he would be welcome back to campus again. That's good. And again, I, I think that being able to, to really have that uh, kind of courtesy across the differences is, is so important. All right, so, so I want to transfer into kind of the business space for a moment because I, I think if you, uh, if you have a brand from, from St. John's College out there in the broader world, it's people in, again, a wide range of, uh, of businesses and neuroscience and social entrepreneurship and everything in between, uh, you, your students, your graduates have this reputation of really being fearless in terms of going into the unknown territory, to be able to ask the, what I call the secondary questions, the, I used to always call it the Wizard of Oz question, it's the because, 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 because questions, uh, to get down to the, the deeper meaning, the bigger approaches. Uh, tell me, what, what is your experience from your graduates' perspective? What kind of reputation do they have in terms of leading these kind of crucial conversations for businesses? Well, I, our graduates do, as you suggested. They work in every field imaginable. And if you ask me, I think the pendulum is swinging back towards people understanding that a broad liberal arts education is probably the best education for an economy in a world that is changing so fast that the jobs that most of our students have haven't even been invented yet. But I guess our um, graduates are known for questioning. They're known for <clears throat> probing. They're known for not accepting the answer, oh, we do it that way because we've always done it that way. Um, I think that they um, also have, um, one of our graduates created the TV show MacGyver, um, and I guess MacGyver is a detective who uses whatever is at hand to try to solve the problems in front of him. That's how we like to think our graduates are built, um, to take a problem, complicated problem, <clears throat> and use whatever tools that are at hand uh, to try to solve it. And they apply that from winemaking to medicine to academics to all kinds of fields. Oh, I love, I love that. The MacGyver of problem solving. That's uh, like you could put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's continue down that path just a, a little further. Because as, as I see some of your, your graduates out there, uh, I think one of, uh, one of our favorites around here is Senator Ben Sass, who has, uh, did some graduate work there at St. John's College. Um, and you look at how he approaches questions in a little bit of a different way. Uh, it's, it's too easy for us to go straight forward uh, with the, the standard question-answer kind of things. Uh, I mean, even in uh, you know, political hearings and, and court cases and, uh, again, business presentations, you just see a different approach. Why do you think that's so essential uh, as you mentioned, as the world continues to change so fast, uh, what advantages does that give to a, to a student coming out with that skill set? I think it gives them a lot of advantages. It, again, if, if they, the one, well, one of the things that happens, I think, to most of our students is they, they overcome their fears, whether it's because they thought they were math phobic and they end up being able to stand up and do a differential equation on the board in front of their classmates or articulate what Euclid did. Um, so they, they, they develop both, and this is seemingly contradictory, boy, but very important. I think they develop humility. 
because I think one of the things that a good liberal arts education should do is shake zealotry, right? It should really cause people to to question such sureness. Um, so that's one thing, which I think is very important. By the way, if I actually asked what outcome I would most want, I think humility is a huge positive. But the second is the confidence that they can use the skills they've developed um, to get someplace. And to and that's that's seemingly contradicting to the humility, but I don't I don't see it that way. So yeah. whether you're a Ben Sass or whether you're an employee at a um, a tech company trying to solve a problem, I think they they use the skill. But the skill is in a group setting a lot, which I think is important. So they they're they've learned to be in a group of about 15 people who are trying to understand something complicated that Hegel may have written and to do so together so that when one person adds a little building block, another person builds on it. That's very different from how many people have learned to work, oh, right? Oh, it, it most definitely is. And, and really understanding that, uh, I love that you use the term humility because it, it really is a, uh, a, a different approach in, a, in an age where so often what is portrayed is instant certainty uh, your students are doing the, the opposite. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. You know, it's an interesting thing because I still think, I mean, I think humility is perhaps the most undervalued human asset. I ran for governor. You brought that up. I lost very badly. Um, that was very painful. I think I'm a much better person for yeah. the experience of having had, yeah. uh, having been given a beating. <laughs> Celebrating that scar tissue is a... Yeah. Uh, is a is a good thing and and I think too the the other thing that that I've noticed with some of your graduates is there are there are people who can walk into a room everyone knows they're the smartest person in the room and everyone leaves at the end feeling a little bit dumber and then there are people who walk into a room everyone knows they're the smartest person in the room but everybody leaves feeling a little smarter and a little better because of the the conversation that was had yeah yeah and and it's it the, the thing about trying to believe you're the smartest person in the world is worth getting over in the in the room. <laughs> Early, it's worth yeah. getting over, right? <laughs> Definitely. And then thinking differently about how how can I contribute to the room collectively? Being smarter yes. is a different mind frame. Exactly. Exactly. I I, I love that. I, uh, I I heard a description uh, of a of a prominent man in our community here in Salt Lake City uh, who who is one of those who would clearly be the smartest person in the room. Uh, but someone commented that they had never heard this gentleman ever say he n knew something. As someone was, you know, you always have those moments. People are telling you something and you can finish the story or you already knew it or, you know, whatever. Uh, and he, he, they've never seen him interrupt anyone uh, and say, oh, I know that. Or, yeah, I read that. Or, yeah, I saw that. Uh, he always lets them go and then extends the conversation with what I think is the, the real art is, is the art of the secondary question. And, and such a nice point, Boyd. Let me, let me riff off that just for a second. So in the classroom, students are taught not to interrupt, but they're also taught not to speak for so long that they deserve interrupting. You see what I mean? Because <laughs> the internal shot clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are two different things. Therefore, what? We are to the point in our program that we actually call 
therefore what? And I'd love to get your take. People who've been listening for the last 25 minutes here, uh, what do you hope they take away from this? What do you hope they think different? What do you hope they do different as a result to uh, engaging with us today? Well, that's a big one. Um, I, I guess that we can all, all of us, including myself, just take a moment to pause and, 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 and shake our own zealotry, um, shake our belief that we've figured it out because we haven't. And um, none of us have. None of us have figured out why we're on this earth, what our purpose is. And, and it's all very humbling to contemplate those questions. And maybe the next time they approach a controversial conversation, um, they'll just be a little more willing to listen and hear out what the person is saying who um, may be saying some things they don't like or that even offend them and, and give it a give it a deeper chance. The other thing, of course, I'd like your listening listeners to consider is if they know someone for whom this education would be right. And we are, as you've pointed out earlier, Boyd, not that well-known in an institution. And it takes a lot of courage for students to come here. Um, they won't be able to hide. They have to work really hard and um, work really hard. So I guess those would be the two things. Fantastic. Mark Roosevelt, president of St. John's College, thank you so much for engaging with us today on There For What. Thank you, boy. This was fun. All the best. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on... Therefore, what?